I am so glad that you are here. You having a good morning so far? Everyone? All right, I want you to high-five the person next to you and say, I'm so glad that you're here. Now, I'm, I'm looking, so I want you to say it like you mean it. Exactly. I'm glad you're here. You see, I know that, that some of you said, I'm so glad that you're here, and they actually rode in the car with you this morning, and you needed me to remind you that you are indeed so glad that they're here, um, although maybe you felt like leaving them at home. I don't know how that works for you, but I'm glad that you're here. And one of the reasons why I'm glad that, that we're all here is because we're about to have a conversation today, and it's a conversation that was prompted by many of you. What I asked the leaders in the church a few months ago is I asked them specifically, I knew that there was a standalone message that it would be this weekend, and I asked them a couple, week, or excuse me, a couple months ago, I said, what is it? that you sense that the church needs to hear that they haven't heard and, and maybe something some they're confused about, maybe something they just are asking questions about, maybe it's just something they know nothing about. What is it? And one of the, the things that bubbled to the surface the most was the Lord's Supper. So today we're going to talk about what we call communion or what we also call the elements, what we also call the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And in the Lord's Supper... Um, the reason why we take it as often as we do, if I'm honest, is because I, I sense that, that we were doing something wrong. Um, many of you know, because you've been here throughout this, these last six months or so, we made a pretty drastic shift to where we went from not taking the Lord's Supper very often to now we're taking on a weekly basis. And what I know to be true is this, the Lord was telling me over and over and over, hey, this is a problem, this is a problem. And so I addressed the problem. And now we have made the Lord's Supper front and center in the services um, since when it was finalized. And now we have been planning around this and we want to bring an awareness to the Lord's Supper. But because of that, many of you had questions like, okay, we didn't take it very often then and now we're taking it now. And, and I know that we all have kind of a hodgepodge of beliefs or understandings about it. So I hope to clear up most or all of those today as we get into the scriptures. Uh, the, the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, however you want to call it, but I call it the Lord's table, is this. Uh, the Lord's table is an ever-expanding table where repentant sinners who have been saved by the grace of God come together and they gather as one body. So that is the table. It's an ever-expanding table. It's like my grandma's table. And my grandma's table, if you were there, I just talked to her Christmas morning or Christmas afternoon, and, and it was after everybody had left, and it was the calm after the storm. And my grandma's house, it's always been a place where, the, where everybody's welcome to eat at her table. And Christmas morning and main holidays, she will have literally 50, 60, 70 people in her house just everywhere, and they'll be drifting in, and some people will leave, and the people will come back, and that's the way it is for all major holidays. But what I remember about my grandma's house is this. That table was welcome to people who would want to just come and gather. And she even welcomed people who were just separated from the family but needed a place to have Christmas or, or Thanksgiving, and she would just welcome them in for the meal and just the hospitality in my grandmother's home. Similarly, but not exactly, the Lord's table is an ever-expanding table. It always grows. Every time somebody gives their life to Jesus, that is an opportunity for that person to then come and take the Lord's Supper. 
Now, what we're also going to see as part of this, we're going to get into our main passage, which is going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, but I want us to actually start in Matthew 26. And in Matthew 26, I just want to read this. This is the first account of the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. Um, and what Jesus does is the reason why, or what Jesus did rather, is the reason why we take the elements in the way that we do. It's also the reason why the Apostle Paul, eventually we're going to see this in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about how important the Lord's Supper is and how important it is that we address the table in the right way spiritually. So, this is Matthew 26, verse 26 through 30. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. Take this, or take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and he offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the wine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There is another account of this where there is something that is said that's, that's like this. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus wants us to take the Lord's Supper. He wants us to take the elements in remembrance for him. It's actually not even about us. It's in remembrance of him. And again, I know that when you hear the Lord's Supper, some of you had different spiritual backgrounds and some of you maybe have, have, have some bad church experiences around the Lord's Supper. And certainly that is not my intent. And I can't fix all those wrongs. But what I can tell you is uh, where some of these misunderstandings come from. So that's what I hope to do now. What, what began in Matthew 26, 26 through 30, like we just read, is still practiced today all over the world because it's, it's still an ever-expanding table. You know what that means. Over repentant sinners who've been free from their sins by the gospel of Jesus that they're welcome to attend and go to. So it has different names and there are some scriptures around these names. One of the names that's common, and this one is the most obvious because that's the one I use the most, is the Lord's Supper. And that's drawn from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. Again, they may all seem like the same thing, but what you see on the screen does not always mean the same thing depending upon the group of people using it. Uh, another reference is the breaking of bread. Again, Acts 2, 42. 20 verse 7 and verse 46 of chapter 2 of the Acts of the Apostles. And then the word Eucharist, which I never use around here. There are particular faith groups that use the word Eucharist and it means thanksgiving. If you look in Mark 14 verse 23, you don't have to go there, but you can look later. Mark 14, 23, you see that it actually talks about giving thanks. So when they say the Eucharist, they're actually borrowing from this word, which means thanks. That inherently isn't wrong, but what some folks do with it is wrong. It's also referred to as Holy Communion. This, this would be, um, the Eucharist would be more of the Eastern Orthodox people, who, uh, who their belief system, and then also Holy Communion is Catholicism. That is in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The main difference when somebody uses the word Eucharist or somebody uses the word Holy Communion they don't always mean that in the same way that we mean the Lord's Supper. There is a belief, and this belief was generated in 
in the 12th century, the belief that with Holy Communion and some of the Eastern Orthodox people believe that when you take the, the bread and you drink of the juice or wine, that literally it, be, that it becomes the body and blood of Jesus like somewhere on the way down. I don't even know how that works. It's like it goes from here and then it, you know, I, don't know, I don't know what it is, but there's a belief system that's based around that that is not biblical. Again, it was generated in about the 12th century, not founded in the scriptures. And I'm going to flood you with scriptures today because I don't want you to see my opinion against someone else's. I want you to verify what I'm saying by the word of God. So the Eucharist, Holy Communion, and that is um, a belief that is, again, outside of normal Christianity. That is its own little branch and own its own little belief. So what I hope to have answered today from the passages of Scripture is this. What is the Lord's Supper? Why do we take it? And why is it so important? So what is the Lord's Supper? We talk about it. We partake of it. There are certain ways that we do it. And uh, so, so why do we take it? And then also we're going to see why is it so important. If you would indulge me and go into your Bible, into 1 Corinthians 11... Verse 17, this is what I'm going to consider our main passage going through verse 34. We're going to break this down into three different groups. I'm going to read three different groups, and then I'm also going to connect some other scriptures that help back up what the Apostle Paul is saying here. 1 Corinthians 11 is a church that didn't get a whole lot of things right. As a matter of fact, they're more known for what they got wrong. I'm going to show you some of the things that they got wrong and the passages accordingly. Because what Paul mentions here at the beginning of this passage is he talks about divisions in the church. And I'm going to show you why there are divisions within the church. But as we break this down, what I want us to see is um, ultimately, what is the Lord's Supper? Why do we take it? And why is it so important? So here we go. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 22 to begin with. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm then good. Who would agree that's bad? Like, your meetings have no value. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. He's like, he says, about you, I have no praise for you. I've got no good thing to say about you. Who would generally think that is condemning the activity in that church? Who would agree with that? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Most of us. He says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I, hear, I mean, isn't this, isn't this what happens like at home? When, you, when you're learning that you've done something wrong, it always starts, well, the first thing. Well, the first, and it's always like it begins with the list. And the Apostle Paul is, is just really about to kind of dig into them a little bit because they need it, because they're doing things so wrong. So this is what he says. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church or as an assembly, as a group, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt that there have been differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes on ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another one gets drunk. Wow. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? And notice how the Apostle Paul ends out that first section. 
Certainly not with a great big exclamation point. So he is just so emphatic. He says, I have nothing to praise you for. What you're doing is wrong. It's not the Lord's Supper that, that you're taking. You're making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. What was happening here in this is the, the rich people were taking advantage of the poor people. The poor people who would need the agape feast, which is what would happen. They would, uh, they would come together and the agape, agape means love. They would have like a love feast after the normal church gathering, like a potluck. And they would come together and then as, as a part of that service, then they would take the elements. The, the poor people who needed the food were being taken advantage of while the rich people didn't care. And some were indulging apparently to the point of getting drunk. And they were indulging upon the elements of the Lord's Supper and just making a mockery of the whole thing. And Paul says, I have nothing about you is praiseworthy. I, I can't commend you at all for what you're doing. But what they were doing was they were just acting upon the rest of the divisions that already existed within the body. So I want to show you some of the divisions, and then I'm also going to put the references so you can do your own Bible study if you want to. But again, I don't want you to see it as my, my opinion. What Paul is talking about here is a problem that just existed in this church, and it was such a big, big problem. And it just had spilled over into the gatherings with the Lord's Supper. So the, the first thing I want us to see is some in the church had become proud of sexually immoral behavior. And we can, you can find this in 1 Corinthians 5. There was sexually immoral behavior in the church, and people were proud of it. And he literally, when the Apostle Paul scolds them, and he says, you're proud of it. That the leadership, for whatever reason, was not addressing it. And now it's causing division, of course. Another thing, people were, they were trying to live out their newfound freedom in Christ, by eating the food that was sacrificed to idols. So food that would be sacrificed to idols, and they're like, well, I'm free in Christ now. I, it means nothing to me to go eat this food. And what happened was, although they thought that it was not an issue for them at that time, it was an issue for others. So with that, I would say, freedom in Christ should not be a stumbling block for others. Freedom in Christ should not be a stumbling block for others. You may be free. The gospel could have set you free from a certain type of bondage, but that doesn't mean that everyone around you is equally free. So if you have a certain uh, and a particular freedom in Christ, that, that doesn't mean that you can just exercise all that freedom when you're around other people who aren't in the same place spiritually. We have to have discernment, which means that there may be things that you consider that you're free of and, and, and you're, you're not in bondage of, but maybe those around you are. And their particular issue was somebody was eating the food that was being sacrificed to idols. And, he, and, and the person would, would be like, you know what, I, it doesn't affect me. I, I don't believe in the idols. It's just food. But yet everybody else, they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That food was separate. It was sac being sacrificed to idols. This food is, it's an issue. Isn't it tainted and isn't all these things? So one person's freedom doesn't equal everybody else's freedom at that time. So our freedom, we have to be mindful of that our freedom can actually be a stumbling block for others. In 1 Corinthians 9, we also see that they had selfish ambition. It, it wasn't about 
the church. It wasn't about Jesus. It wasn't about the gospel. It wasn't about evangelizing. It wasn't about making disciples. It was about selfish ambition. It was about selfish ambition. People, people were prideful and they were looking out for themselves. This would be a problem that would plague everyone in the New Testament. And it would plague people still today. Selfish ambition. These all becoming reasons why there was divisions within the church. Another thing, they were holding, certain folks were holding to certain dietary laws and they were forcing it upon others. While some had freedom in Christ and they were exercising that freedom around those who were not quite as free and it was a stumbling block for them, now you have some people who had then they were adding in legalism, things that they should have had freedom from, but now they, they're like, no, 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 you have to maintain these dietary laws. When the gospel frees them from all of those dietary laws, the same laws, the, the, the Jewish laws, and there was freedom in, in the Acts of the Apostles, we see this, there was the, the freedom from those dietary laws. Also, and shamefully, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 6, it details how men and women, specifically, they were rebelling against God by making themselves look like transvestites. They were making themselves look like the opposite gender. And they were doing it just simply rebelling against God. And they were proud of it. And for whatever reason, the leadership in the church hadn't addressed it, so now... The Apostle Paul, who's not pastoring this church, he just writes a letter to this church, now he has to be the one who addresses it. Think how awkward that had to have been for him and how hard that would have had to have been for him to even write a a letter that is scolding like this. And the the last thing, and, and there's certainly more, but I just cut it short here. We see in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, so it's just after the main passage that we're reading from. Just after this, you see there was a big issue because some people had certain spiritual gifts and they wanted to exercise those gifts. It was like a kid, it was like kids playing with, with their toys. And it was like they just wanted to play with their toys. It's like this newfound thing of these spiritual gifts. And they now it started to be a competition for who is more holy, but who has what spiritual gifts. So they're like, I have this gift, I'm, I'm more holy. And then the Apostle Paul in verse 13, which is interesting, it was read at many weddings. I've read it at many weddings in 1 Corinthians 13 um, in a passage through there. But really that's in the context of the division that's happening within the church, people using spiritual gifts and they're boasting about these gifts. And like, again, it was like a kid with a new toy. It's like, just, I want to see it, I want to see it and don't care what anybody else thinks. And it was causing division within the church. So then the apostle Paul would write to them and he says, yes, you have these gifts and that's all right and fine, but every gift needs to be used in a way that is orderly. It leads to orderly worship. So, Again, you see the competition. Now there's rivalries within the church. And it only makes sense after all these issues that they're probably going to have some issues on the other things that they're supposed to be doing. Let's go back into our main passage in verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. 
the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you proclaim, and and that word proclaim means this, it means to openly make known. So when we gather together as a church, and we, we take the elements, we are proclaiming what Jesus has done. Although this, this group is a place that welcomes people who are not followers of Jesus, that we want this to be a a place where people can belong even before they believe what we believe about the gospel. But also, this is part of us, when we take the elements, we're proclaiming, we're making Jesus known, we're making the the work of the cross known, we're making much of Jesus. We're doing what it is that the scriptures are telling us to do. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in the, in the space between Jesus' death and His coming again, we take the elements because it brings us back to the death that, that frees the repentant sinner from their sin. In this, in this passage, there is a reference to the new covenant. I would like for you to go to the right in your Bible to Hebrews 9, starting in verse 15. And I'll want us to look into this new covenant. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this passage, but this passage is directly connected to the one that we just read. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a... What's the next two words in your Bible? Somebody? New covenant. And those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So it's a new covenant, and it's the new covenant that is nullifying the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who is made is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ died on a cross. His blood was shed as the atoning sacrifice for those who would commit their lives to Him. And for those repentant sinners who've been set free from their sins by the broken body and the blood shed of Jesus, for them the ever-expanding table grows. 
It is these people who are welcomed into the new covenant. It is the, the covenant that Jesus initiated, inaugurated, and he, it was birthed upon His death, and it was then spoken of in Hebrews 9, because it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's what it said in verse 22. So without Jesus' blood being shed, there would be no way for us to be right with God. And those who are right with God through salvation, after surrendering their life to Jesus, these people are in a new covenant with God. Of which it said in verse 15, Jesus is the mediator. He is the go-between. So because the blood that, that he shed, he not only becomes the atoning work, he is also the mediator between us and God. So when we come together to the Lord's table, taking the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, we're going back in, in, in a sense, celebrating the new covenant that Jesus has brought us in. And it's a covenant that every Christian is brought into, and it's, it's a covenant, it's a special binding relationship with God. Now, we'll continue on in verse 27 of our main passage, 1 Corinthians 11. What we've seen so far is how to do it in some ways. And we talked about who should do it, those who are part of the new covenant, that means Christians, those who've been born again. And now we're also going to see how we should do it. Therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. If for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. When it says fallen asleep in the New Testament, it means they've died. So apparently there had been people from the time when Jesus uh, rose again, died, rose again. It, the first time of, of when the disciples shared the Last Supper with Jesus and Jesus said, do these things in remembrance of me. In a couple decades, apparently people, in accordance to what the Bible just said, uh, apparently there were people who were weak and sick and some of them have died because they took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now you sense how heavy and how important it is that we pause before we come before the table to take the Lord's Supper. This is the reason why we pause in every service when we take the Lord's Supper to give opportunity for God to do a work on our hearts before we just come before the elements. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. He says, but, it, but if, we, if we examine ourselves, if we judge our own motives, the motives of our own heart, if we come before and we judge ourselves by the Lord's standard, if we do these things and we have time of confession before we take the elements, we won't be coming under this judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, 
so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Apparently, he had more to give to these people. And maybe that would be given in the other letters. I'm not really sure. But we just know that there's more that he was supposed to give. But what does this mean in an unworthy manner? If I look at verse 27, I just invite you to look at verse 27 again. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. The word unworthy or an unworthy manner also means careless. Careless. Some of the other, when I started this out, some of the other people, he said these people were focused on self. That it actually wasn't about the Lord. It wasn't about the body of believers. It was themselves. They were coming to the table to make themselves look good or to make themselves feel good. They were ultimately focused on themselves. And we also know that they were ignoring the needs of others. They weren't loving people like they should. What's troubling for me is imagining how many times Christians have come to the ever-expanding table to take the elements, and they've actually come in an unworthy manner. Where they had maybe hatred in their heart toward another brother or sister. Maybe it was a family issue and, and they just kind of stuffed it in a corner and they, they're pretending right now that there is no issue, that, that, the, they, that the other person is at fault. And if that person would just get right, then everything would be fine, that it's all about this other person. I just wonder how many times we've harbored bitterness in our heart or hatred in our heart where we've not loved God and loved people well, and yet all we've done is we've just come to the table in an unworthy manner. And that bothers me to think that, that Christians would just come to the table, just, just come to the table in an unworthy way of just treating it as if it's just maybe just a spiritual act. Well, this is just what we do. Again, unworthy manner also means careless. Careless. Obviously, much care needs to be used here. And as, as you flip in your Bible, hold your place there if you would please. But if you flip in your Bible to the left, I, I want to invite you to go to Isaiah 53. And I, I'm particularly sharing this passage because this passage is not only directly connected to the Last Supper and what Jesus did when he broke, uh, he broke the bread and they drank the wine when Jesus uh, broke the bread and, and drank the wine with the disciples. It's not only connected to 1 Corinthians 11, but this also is something that was written hundreds of years before even the birth of Jesus. And, and I know that maybe you're listening today and you just, you've wondered about the Lord's Supper and what's the big deal? And maybe you've sat in church services and, and, and you're still, you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus at all and yet you're just, you're kind of stubborn and you come in to just try and take a couple good nuggets uh, and then leave. And while this is a welcoming place for all people, um, I want you to take an honest look at this. What we're going to read together was written approximately 700 years before the birth, let alone the death of Jesus. And if you're even curious at all about the faith, I want you to, to lean into what this says. 
Surely he took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor any deceit in his mouth. Who is that passage making reference to? Jesus Christ. This is a foretelling of what would happen on the cross. So even if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to to look at that. This has been proven archaeologically. This has been proven spiritually. This even, multiple different faith groups, even outside of Christianity, believe that this passage is talking about Jesus. So if you're curious about the Christian faith, you should be curious enough to explore what we just read together. And it is connected to the Lord's Supper. I don't know about you, but I love a good crime show. Does anybody else like a good crime show? Like, I just, I don't know why. I like crime shows. I, I love the, the investigation of it. I love the detectives. I love when they, they find all these clues. And maybe it was because I was never good at puzzles when I was a kid. I just didn't have the patience to kind of put stuff together. But like detectives, they take all these things and it just forms a puzzle. Uh, you know, the puzzle and they solve the case and then they solve the case and then they get the bad guy and Justice prevails, all that stuff. I'm drawn to all of that. But what I really like about it is how detectives follow the evidence. And what you hear in these shows is just follow the evidence. Just follow the evidence. If we examine ourselves when we come before the Lord to take the elements, what we're looking for is we're looking for evidence of, true, of, of an authentic walk with Jesus. We're looking for evidence of confession. Two years ago, we started reinforcing this idea of confession. Firmly believing that confession has always been a part of the Christian life, but, but it's been really heavy on me and it's been heavy on, on much of the leadership to convey this idea of how important confession is. Because confession is opening up yourself to God. So God just inviting him in by his spirit to examine you. Not to just examine what you're doing, but the motives behind what you're doing. So a part of this examination, and if you follow the evidence, and as you just invite the Holy Spirit in to examine you, what you're going to see is there are going to be things in your life where you've fallen short that require confession. Trusting that if we confess that Jesus is faithful 
and He is just, and He will forgive us of our sins. That's what it says in 1 John 1, 9. So when we examine ourselves, it isn't that we just examine ourselves and we feel bad. That would be pointless. That leads us to condemnation. But instead, we examine ourselves. That way, we can, we can uh, allow God to reveal in us what needs to be confessed and how we can walk in the newness of life, that we can repent of those sins that He's pointed out. What I see is a lot of Christians, they, they have this, this sin in their life and God reveals them that sin, but all they do is they feel bad. They don't actually change. They don't, take, they don't have their response of what God's initiating. If God reveals to you that there's sin, that means there's something that needs to be dealt with. And the first act of repentance is confession. Acknowledging to God that you have violated His standard that you have not loved him well, and you've not loved others well. So the Lord's Supper, when done well, it leads us to five different conclusions, five different ways of living. When it's practiced well, it brings us to first examine ourselves. It leads us to examine ourselves, which is why we pause, and we're going to in a moment, we pause before we come to the table. Apparently, the church in Corinth, it was like a free-for-all where they were just running to the table and elbowing people out of the way to get to, get to the elements and, and all that kind of craziness. But we pause to examine ourselves, to see what the evidence of our life shows. The second thing after examining ourselves is the Lord's Supper, when practiced well, it brings us to a deep fellowship with Christ, to deep fellowship with Christ. Not in just some passive way, well, I got saved, woo! It's instead, it's, it's realizing that day by day, apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. As talented as you think you are, as gifted as you think you are, as connected as you think you are, as, as many dollars as you have represented in your 401k and your pension plan, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. When we come together and we take the elements, it is a reminder of our sinful condition and what Jesus offered for us on the cross. And that leads us to a place of continual surrender. The third thing is this, and this is, uh, this I draw from John 6, 35, and verse 35 of John 6, the continual feeding on Christ. This again, apart from Christ, abiding in Christ. The elements of spiritual formation. Developing your prayer life, your time in the word, your time in community, your time in confession. Your time resting before the Lord. Your time in solitude. Your time sitting in silence. Your time in in just journaling. Continually feeding on Christ. The passage in John 6, it makes mention to Jesus being the bread of life. And that just isn't some exaggeration of his name. It's the bread of life. He is the sustenance and the substance of a Christian's life. Apart from him, we can do nothing. The fourth thing, 
that when the Lord's Supper is practiced well, it brings us to is unity with Christian people. Unity with Christian people. It, in this ever-expanding of the Lord's table, what it does, it connects our body, but it also connects this local body with every other gospel-preaching body that then is taking the Lord's Supper. So it is an ever-expanding, and now we have unity with Christian people. It's just this unity around the table. Again, as we're examining ourselves continually, as we just walk in this deep fellowship with Christ continually, as we're continually feeding on Christ, also it brings us to unity, the unity of Christian people. And the last thing it does, it teaches us loyalty. Loyalty to Christ. Loyalty to Christ. Again, not loyal to your bank account, not loyal to your whims and desires, not loyal to your kids, not loyal to your marriage, not loyal to your boss, not loyal to to whatever version of the good life that you think it is. When we take the Lord's Supper, it brings us to loyalty to Christ again because apart from Him, we can do nothing. So it's it's reflecting upon Jesus' broken body and shed blood of which then is an invitation for those who would surrender, for those who would be called Christians. It's an invitation into this new covenant. And as a member of this new covenant, as the table is ever expanding, repentant sinners gain freedom from their sins and the effects of their sins. And they walk in the newness of life and God holds them eternally secure. That's the reason why we're loyal. To Christ.